This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Supermarket Token Horror. The Spire Pit. Samurai Movies 101. And Sacred Alphabets. In Cursed Court, an amazing new board game from Atlas Games, you play minor nobles with limited resources. Oh, so limited. You bet your influence and hope that major figures do what you expect each year at court. Major figures like the king, queen, priestess, and assassin. I don't like the sound of that last one. Winner of the Major Fun Award, Father Geek Approved Seal, and the Dice Tower Seal of Excellence. Citadel's designer Bruno Ferruti says... He has not been as enthralled by a new game in years and calls it an unexpected masterwork. Geek Dad calls it an excellent bidding and bluffing game. It's easy to learn, plays fairly quickly, and looks great on the table. Check out the amazing art, great gameplay, and up-to-the-minute award list at atlas-games.com slash cursed court. Or see the link in the show notes. Or make haste to your friendly local game store. Before all those other lousy minor courtiers beat you to it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive has welcomed us once more into the gaming hut, where we begin an all-request episode, 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 episode. One of these days, we should have a sound effect. Anyway, <laughs> for this all-request episode, 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 requester and Patreon backer David Shaw requests in this episode, episode, I've been wondering how to go about imbuing some everyday mundane item with spine-chilling horror. For example... Our local supermarket has been issuing shoppers with little plastic tokens, which they can then use to vote on which of three local good causes receives the donation. These tokens have started appearing all around town. How could something like this have a deeper, more sinister significance? Robin, do you have notions for little plastic do-gooder tokens and how they can turn wrong? Or (laughs) are we not going to talk about, well, (laughs) finish the joke. I'm in a good mood. Yeah, that's, we'll leave the rest of the joke as a as an exercise for the listener. So, uh, well, I don't know about the rest of you, but since uh, I have been wrapping up uh, my work on the Yellow King role-playing game core set, I naturally think that, of course, these tokens, uh, it's unspecified in the description, I'm assuming they're round, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming that uh, if there's three different types of them, one of them, at least, is yellow. Yeah. And uh, when you... Uh, uh, look at them with a, a certain frame of mind or in a uh, particular light, uh, it turns out that they have the yellow sign on them because, of course, this makes uh, perfect sense as part of an eldritch horror universe in which one of the elements is a particular... They reveal the yellow sign to the person who's about to kill themselves or uh, commit some other act of utter despair in the same way that uh, Lon Chaney can see the pentagram in the hand of the person he's about to murder. Exactly. And so uh, you uh, get a token, and if you're an ordinary uh, person, it, it attempts to exert its uh, influence over you, and uh, if you uh, resist, it just remains a, a yellow thing that uh, uh, signals, you know, that you are donating to, oh, let's say, the uh, the Bee Reclamation Project, where you're, uh, it's a charity for research into the disappearing bees, and uh, it's uh, the color of honey. You're going to buy habitat. Yeah, you're, 
uh, part of the money goes to building uh, new uh, uh, flower beds and stuff for stuff for the bees to pollinate, and others goes into bee research. And uh, uh, the other two tokens, of course, they just refer to perfectly normal charities. Uh, one is for uh, you know uh, water purity, and another is for uh, let's say a children's hospital. So those ones are just perfectly normal. So it's the yellow ones that we have to worry about, right. and the yellow ones, of course, uh, remain. Uh, inactive, uh, just they they just remain, uh, you know, bee related uh, for most people who uh, get a hold of them. But for those who are awakened to the yellow sign, of course, your duty, uh, as is the case in the uh, repair of reputation story, where Mister Wild's uh, network of blackmailed agents all respond to the yellow sign, and there's sort of an implication in there that has a kind of a hypnotic effect on them. You start uh, going and doing. Uh, yellow sign related things. Now, it's not super interesting uh, for the whole scenario to just be all of you have been sucked in by the yellow sign conspiracy, but rather uh, you're the ones who see the signs of the conspiracy starting to uh, take shape and you see weird things happening and begin to develop. And only much later in the action is there the risk that one of you will uh, look at the yellow sign and then uh, feel its uh, mental tug on you. And and even then, you don't want the character to be pulled completely away from the rest of the group in the investigation and, and just go off uh, serving uh, the king in yellow, but rather you just get enough of the pull on you to A, get more of an insight into what's going on, and B, perhaps at a crucial moment, you might do something to undermine the rest of the group. Uh, if you're playing, uh, actually playing the Yellow King role-playing game, you might even gotten a shock card that uh, tells you that you can get rid of this card by doing something to undermine the rest of the group. So we can proceed then from there to the idea of, obviously, this is a scenario for uh, This Is Normal Now, which is the uh, version of the, the game that is set in putatively our normal world. And uh, we can start to have fun with the idea of a spreading uh, conspiracy, a, a meme that you are given in physical form at the supermarket that then starts to uh, have weird things begin to develop in your apparently normal and, uh, dare we even say, bucolic suburban community. And this serves as a specific example of the general principle that uh, the way that you imbue something with a deeper, more sinister significance is you come up with a deeper, more sinister thing, whether that be the king in yellow or the mythos or uh, a Pontypool effect where people's uh, uh, social minds fragment uh, or all of the above, uh, but it's something that is larger, something that is evident, um, and it can just be as simple as those, you know, missing kid posters that sometimes you see around town, and as you go through the adventure, you're like, there's a lot more missing kid posters. I never really noticed how many missing kid posters there were. That that whole wall of that, of the old um, uh, uh, record stores is covered in missing kid posters. That's all over that lamppost, and then as the players have seen missing kid posters around, they will become hypersensitized to it, and that will create the same illusion in the real world, and there will be a real-world connection, much like with your little tokens. And in this case, the missing kid posters might not even be a conspiracy. They're just a symptom. They're a spore of the fact that there's werewolves in town or vampires or whatever. And this normal thing, which is still sad and tragic, is imbued with more significance. Or you can take some normal sort of activity and amplify it. So rather than just these little tokens being swapped around by people, people start collecting them on the Internet. And they have, no, this one has a special serial number and I want these. And then they start trading them and it becomes sort of this obsessive thing where people are giving each other 
way more money to get these little tokens than ever went to the beef uh, colony or to wherever else. And it becomes sort of a spiraling, you know, nexus of madness. And maybe that spiraling nexus of madness is also inspired by the yellow King, or maybe it's just acting as a symptom for everything else that uh, you're sort of painting is wrong with society through the medium of horror gaming. Um, another possibility is that you have, uh, instead of just spore or an active conspiracy or evidence, uh, the thing that uh, you, you see around has begun to take on an unnatural shape. And I sort of did that with the competing over those tokens. But if you think about the little um, uh, teddy bears that you sometimes see left where a biker has had an accident, you'll see the bike has been spray painted white and left there and people with teddy bears or flowers or whatever. And these sort of impromptu roadside shrines can sometimes be pretty elaborate. And if you begin to think, what if people are starting to potlatch death and that's a subconscious response to all these monsters that these little roadside shrines are getting more and more ridiculous. And so it's not unusual. It may be a little startling the first time, but eventually you get used to it to walk past eight foot tall stacks of teddy bears and flowers and uh, whatever else on the site of some uh, senseless tragedy. And this amplified human response to a genuinely disturbing thing creates its own disturbance as you're wondering, what is the cause of it? Is there something, are we propitiating these death fetches with these uh, offerings? Is there some sort of, are these grave goods that they're going to use in the afterlife and back, bike messenger afterlife? What's, what's going on exactly? And anything that is normal that you either focus on obsessively or that begins to take on an abnormal shape is almost by definition the weird, right? Right. And so the next step then is to flesh this out into something that we can uh, develop into an actual scenario in which the players get to do something. Because so far, they've noticed something weird. Yes. Uh, so if we go back to the tokens and, and the, the yellow tokens. It's like, okay, they've noticed something is odd. Or, uh, or, or in fact, we haven't even come to the part where they've... We as the designer of the scenario have posited that there's something odd about these, but we haven't yet even introduced the oddness to the characters. But let's work backwards uh, from, uh, so we've got the supernormal thing, and now let's extrapolate what is the actual point of this uh, supernatural emanation. Uh, now, it might even not even be a conscious point. It might just be a phenomenon, but it's going to culminate in something. So uh, this could be, you know, a... Uh, it could all be building uh, toward uh, some sort of great uh, uh, tragedy where everyone affected by the tokens helps make the tragedy happen. So uh, it may be that there's, a, you know, an anniversary of the great fire that, that rushed through uh, the town and a, a high school burned down and some people were uh, killed and more people were hurt. And uh, coincidentally, you know, the natural habitat next to the uh school uh, that was burned down as well and that's why you need to uh you know to donate to the the bee charity to re to help rebuild that uh that habitat and so what is going to happen well uh the uh the most horrible thing that could possibly happen in this community the most traumatic thing would be for a bunch of people in the community to get together and to make an even worse version of that happen so let's say that there's going to be the the dedication of the new school that's built on that site and uh, everybody who's really affected by that is eventually going to all go uh, to the investor ceremony and drive their vehicles up to all the doors and trap the people inside and then uh, set the building on fire. And this is the terrible horror that you're going to uh, hopefully prevent. Um, and so 
now we go back to, okay, so we're looking at sort of an invasion of the body snatchers thing where people start to behave in a peculiar fashion. And, uh, and so we need to now work backwards from, okay, that's what they're planning to do. So they're going to need some really big vehicles to cover the exits. Uh, possibly uh, somebody wants to uh, steal the plans to be sure of that. So there might be other crimes. There might be, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, maybe they uh, want, uh, you know, the makings of a bomb. So all of a sudden there's a big, uh, there's a fertilizer theft and at the fertilizer uh, factory, you know, you may pass that, uh, pass by it with your friends. Uh, we could even make this sort of a, a kids versus the, the Yellow King sort of situation, right? Which is more, uh, it's sort of a classic small town thing. So you're biking past and you see these, uh, collection of yellow, uh, tokens all laid out in front of the fertilizer factory. And that's the, you have a weird feeling about that. And then you start to look into it and then you can work backwards from the fact that those tokens are showing up. They're in front of the school and they're in front of the, uh, the truck yard where people are going to uh, steal the trucks from. And then uh, from there, you can start to uh, try and piece together what the uh, mystery is. And also, once you start poking into it, a bunch of other people who have those tokens are just activated to be on the lookout for, in this case, meddling kids. Yeah. And so they can then, uh, you know, start to take actions against uh, the group, which initially seemed kind of normal. So... Uh, you know, the first sign of, of pressure against you is just that your parents get phone calls saying, well, we, we saw you, your, you and your bike riding friends hanging out in front of the fertilizer factory. Well, you shouldn't be doing that. And, uh, and so the trick then is to have it seem normal for as long as it possibly can until, uh, it sort of tips over and then would tip over into weird manifestations that you as the, as the kids in the small town community, you see the weird stuff, but of course, your dumb parents never do. Yeah, the um, the notion of uh, having that literally different perspective on things, I think, is really key for something like this, because it's that different perspective you're trying to inculcate into the players as well, so that they will start seeing this stuff in their own memory, or they'll see it in between sessions of the game when they are out in the city, and they come back and they say, oh my god, I just saw those tokens everywhere, what the hell? Or, or something else, but you're trying to create that sense of different perspective. And if you're playing uh, meddling kids, the notion that grownups are doing something weird and stupid is sort of baked into the genre. So in the same way that, say, Invaders from Mars plays with the old uh, 50s uh, 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 wartime paranoia stuff, you can play with that same feel only with whichever your flavor of, of paranoia is, because you're still dealing that same paranoia and the uncanny. And you can have you know, the inciting incident be that one of the kids that you knew in school kind of um has something bad happen to them. Maybe their dad kills himself or there's some other tragedy in their life. And when they go and they visit them, they see a lot of those yellow tokens just sort of littering the place. And it's like, that's odd. And then they start twigging to that being a common factor at these otherwise unrelated things that they're noticing. And depending on how you want to play it, you can have a two pedal system where they notice the yellow tokens, and also they kind of hear bees everywhere, and they see bees everywhere. This is if the bee colony uh, restitution is not actually just an innocent false flag, but is in fact a front 
and that uh, the the king in yellow is working through the bee intelligence or that the bees are somehow occultly familiar with the king in yellow and have made a deal with him to keep their colonies alive when he takes over. Right. Some sort of system where the bees are like, humanity has screwed us over, but the king in yellow is going to give us a better deal. We'll reign at his side like we did under Napoleon and under the uh, under Saladin and uh, these other uh, woke uh, dictators. You can put them under the microscope and there you go. Oh, there's the yellow sign actually in the pattern of the, the stripes on these bees. These bees are not entirely... Mm-hmm. This is the wrong kind of stripe on the bee, and it could, in fact, be that you know that the uh, that the bees come and start swarming around. That their job is to sting all of the first responders who come in, and so uh, yes. you may uh, find, uh, you know, part of the investigation then is for you as the kids to discover the way to immunize yourself uh, from the bees. You discover the, uh, you know, the, the the sign of the. You discover that there's a type of wasp that are the enemies of these bees, and so you. Uh, your science uh, person then uh, cooks up wasp juice to scare away the bees, and then that gives you a, a secondary thing to investigate. You know, your means of this gives you the advantage that the adults don't have and that you're immune to the bee attack, and you can uh, run in and uh, uh, do whatever it is that you have to do to uh, stop things. And because you're uh, kids, you also probably want to find some other uh, sort of antidote to uh, whatever the malign force is so that, you know, if you can get in, to the school and uh, and do something and have the uh, you know the anti version of the the yellow sign and get it in there in time uh, you will uh, uh, win but of course if you if you fail well you're in the school when the when the terrible catastrophe uh, happens so uh, I think now that we've got uh, bees assisting in the uh, explosion of a new school I think we've provided the the obvious question to why supermarkets would have tokens like that and can move on to our next segment. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pograin Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The look of those cornices over there, and I think perhaps even the flying buttress, and the, the smell of old blueprint machine paper, and, and I think there might even actually be a, uh, a building 
that in some way resembles the concept diagram because we've entered that most towering of huts, the architecture hut. And this time in our All Request episode, Patreon backer Neil Kaplan would like to hear about Chicago's Spire Pit. Uh, this is a giant hole in the ground uh, that resulted from uh, architecture which is yet to be completed. And Ken, because it's in Chicago, is this the best hole in the whole, whole world? This absolutely is the best hole in the whole, whole world. First of all, it's a giant uh, cylindrical hole circling down into the ground at um, uh, 400 North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. Uh, second of all, it was the foundation, or was going to be the foundation, for a tower designed by uh, the architect Santiago Calatrava. And Donald Trump hated the tower because it was going to compete with his tower. And uh, so it's not just a hole. It's a hole that everyone can get behind. And second of all, or third of all, it's um, uh, just hilarious that some of the most valuable real estate in the world has got a giant pit to the uh, to the afterlife or, or whatever is down there. Uh, just sitting on it instead of lovely buildings, because, of course, uh, once the financial crisis hit in 2008, no one had any money to build 2,000-foot-tall towers, and everyone started suing everyone. And it's only very, very recently that they've straightened out the legal mess enough that they can begin to propose other things to do with the Chicago Spire Pit and the Chicago Spire Pit site. And uh, they're uh, planning two smaller towers. I mean, they'll still be pretty good towers. Um, in any other city, they would be definitely uh, big towers. But in Chicago, they're just sort of towery. And I don't know that the design on the new ones is as nice as Calatrava's original, uh, but I'm not a big Skidmore Owens Merrill fan. So that's my way. And presumably, there's some reason why the new project can't be the old project, because is there some... Uh, it can't necessarily be a flaw in the design. Is it just that they can't afford now uh, to put together the money to do the original one? Part of it was that building that original tower, which was going to be um, 2,000 feet, it was going to be the second tallest building in the world, um, and it was going to be a residential project, that would have really overbuilt the luxury residence space in Chicago. There just wasn't money for it, really. And certainly there wasn't after 2008. So the reason that they're not using the original design, first of all, the new people don't own the original design. They didn't pay for it, so they had to get a new design. But second right. of all, they wanted a smaller design that would have a smaller footprint of traffic and uh, parking and everything else that happens when you build a new giant building uh, downtown. And uh, we will see if they ever get either of those buildings built. They literally just had the sort of public meeting where they said, hey, here's our new design. Isn't it cool? And I think people pretty much said, it's all right. And so we'll now see if the new owners can actually get the money together to build it. They're talking about um, not breaking ground because ground is pretty dramatically broke, but basically beginning the construction next summer and then having it done in 2022, I think was the plan. So we'll see if that ever eventuates to anything, but the tower as designed by Calatrava would have been economically on the bubble, maybe even before the bubble burst. And certainly it just couldn't pay for itself now. Right. N not even uh, with the global market in uh, condos for money longer. No, I mean, for whatever reason, Chicago has dodged some of, I'm not going to say all of that bullet, but we've dodged some of it. And it may just be that, you know, uh, the flight to Chicago from Moscow or uh, Beijing is, or, or rather uh, Hong Kong, is um, uh, just that many hours longer. And they'd rather just stop at JFK or LAX or Vancouver and not um, uh, deal with that next uh, hump into the middle of the country. Or it may be that because Chicago has so much residential real estate anyway, that 
they can't really drown the market in the same way as buying every single loft in Manhattan can do. Now, I take it this giant uh, foundation has has been there for how long now? How long <laughs> they, has it been a giant they, hole? They, the they, dug, of they dug the, the hole in 2007 or 2008. It's been... It, it's been a hole in the ground for a decade now, and and it just looks great. I mean, we should have a picture or something <laughs> in the show notes, but it does look like the place that um, uh, King Leonidas kicks the Persians down into in in um, uh, 300, or it looks like, you know, there should be a big uh, rotating hatch cover on it so the Cthulhu doesn't come out. It's a good spire. I mean, it's a good pit. It goes... Um, it goes deep. And is it just an earthen pit at this point still, or, or did they get the actual foundation part? No, it's, it's, um, uh, that's part of what makes it so fun. There are layers of, um, concrete supports and, and things poured down there. It looks literally like you were waiting for an enormous screw to come screw in or a light bulb. Um, it's a socket, really. It, it's better than a, just a, a boring old pit. If it had been an earthen pit, it would be full now because, uh, we get rain in Chicago and, uh, but, but it's got, you know, it, it's withstood the ridiculousness of, um, of, uh, of Chicago weather. It is a, it is a genuine proper mohole pit. I mean, maybe that's what's going on is that this is the doorway to the land of the chuds and that's why it ha- has been kept open for a decade. Now, uh, I would think that if you have a giant hole in the middle of your city, you need someone to guard it. But if the company that, made the hole is no longer extant. Who, who's, who's been keeping people out of that hole all these years? <laughs> I assume that um, whoever physically still owns the land has to have a guy. But it's an enormous hole, and it's kind of right in the middle of downtown. It's not quite uh, downtown in the loop, but it's um, uh, just north of the river. So it's very, very central. So a lot of it may just be that, you know, People will see if someone, you know, sneaks onto the site. It's in the middle of a pretty big vacant lot, which has got fences and stuff like that around it because it was a construction site at one time. But I'm sure that, you know, area teens could easily sneak up and fall in. Uh, there's just, it, it's a, it's such a large, uh, thing that I, I can't imagine that guarding it is, is an easy job. Certainly the city doesn't want to pay, uh, cops to guard it. Um, they have to be making the real estate company do it. And the real estate company, as we've discussed previously, has no money. So, uh, we're talking a difficulty three, uh, stealth roll to get into the hall. Yeah. I would say, I would say difficulty three, difficulty four, if you do it, you know, during a busy time, but it, it's just not that hard to, to get down into that hole. I can't imagine. Right. I mean, people may see you do it from, uh, the buildings that overlook it, but as if you go, you know, when there's low observation, you sneak across and launch yourself into the pit. Right. So the, the obvious plot line, of course, is that there was something put into the pit by the original owners uh, that's supposed to stay down there, and it was supposed to have a building on top of it to prevent you getting to it. But uh, somehow, uh, you know, th- through the uh, previously mentioned financial shenanigans, it hasn't been built. And we know now that someone is about to build something on it, so this is the time when your elite team gets called in to go down and get the thing at the bottom of the hole uh, before new construction begins. Uh, and so presumably you are then a force of people who are opposed to the original group who wanted the thing buried. So uh, what would one a group of people in a modern conspiracy game want to put in a hole and our group of people want to get out of that hole? I think that first of all, you have to say if it was just like, say, the Ark of the Covenant, they could have moved it during the when they discovered they couldn't build a building. They'd say, well, that's bad. We'll take up the Ark of the Covenant. We'll bury it somewhere else and put a different building on it. So it has to be something that you kind of can't 
move again. And my theory is that you've got the corpse of some giant monster down there, maybe an enormous antediluvian vampire, or maybe you've got, you know, a, a star spawn. But the reason that they're there is that they're under some sort of enchantment or a big metal stake that can't be moved because if you pull it out, then they wake back up and the whole system goes wrong. And it was meant to sort of use that creature as a transformer to tamp down on demonic energy that would then be used to power the building and give it a financial advantage over all the other condo buildings. And that that was their real way that they were going to fill up that building and and bankrupt Trump tower was that they were going to use demon energy to make the building preternaturally attractive to people or, you know, use it uh, to harness unluck for other condo developments in the area. And it was going to act as this sort of pin for a great ley line that would maybe, you know, flip Chicago's whole magical grid into feeding uh, wealth and prosperity into this tower and into the tower's ownership. And they can't do it because they don't have a tower, but they can't move the giant monster because if they pull the stake out or whatever or uh, take the enchantment off, it wakens up and it kills everybody. I should mention that the pit is 80 feet deep, that if you're... Gaming this out on the on the graph paper, it's an eighty foot deep uh, pit. So uh, that's a, a difficulty uh, for athletics uh, check to, to rapple down safely without uh, harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so presumably here in that scenario, you are not trying to take the giant monster out of the pit because giant monster. Um, right. So rather, you're probably trying to uh, you know that it's staked down there, it's stuck there, but it's obviously still got some power. It's it's torpid, and your goal is to finish it off. Right. And so uh, you know that there are two stakes uh, stuck in the giant monster. Uh, there's the red stake and the yellow stake. And you know that if you uh, take out the uh, yellow stake and then replace it with a second red stake, which, of course, you have to take down with you, and that's all sorts of... Uh, that complicates your, your climbing uh, role. That makes it a difficulty five, and uh, that makes it harder to sneak on. You've got to sneak in uh, disguising this... This giant stake. You've got to sneak it in ahead of time in a trailer that it's disguised as a construction trailer, yeah. maybe. Uh, but even then, there's a moment when you have to do the transfer. And, yeah, where you have to uncrate it and carry the yeah. thing down, which is um, not good. And, of course, you get down to the bottom of the uh, the pit, and there you are. And guess what? The uh, paint on both of the stakes has been uh, the creature's blood has gone up into the stakes and sort of corroded both of them. And they're now uh, both an essentially identical color of rust uh, uh, brown, and you know that, well, you've got a, do you have a 50% chance? Is that it? Or has the creature somehow altered the stakes? And uh, because just like you can't leave a gun on the table in the third act, you can't have a creature that's pinned down uh, and then just, oh, and then you kill it while it's helpless. That's no fun. I guess another way of doing this so that you're not the, uh, the, the fools who let the monster loose is that you're trying to stop the people from letting the monster uh, loose and you get there just not quite in time. And so you're not the uh, idiots who caused the problem of the monster uh, getting out of the pit and ravaging across uh, Chicago, but you're the, the cleanup crew. Well, what people know in the occult Chicago monster community is that the seeping ichor that oozes out of the wounds made by the two stakes is really useful for magic, Right. You can put it in in jars and use it in alchemy, and you can drink it and get monster powers, and you can do all kind of cool things with it, trade it around for other magic items. So it's it's this great resource that as long as you can sort of sneak in and get it, it's awesome. And at some point, enough people have gone to tap blood out of this thing that 
the um uh, the creature is less staked down because the wounds are, are looser than it was before and it's one batch of guys who are down there with a really big tap right they've managed to get a compressor and a and a pump down there and they're going to pump gallons of the blood out of this thing and just make a big killing this is their one big score in the occult world and maybe they approached your characters and said hey you want in on this we could really use your trailer and they're like no no we we got another thing to do with our trailer and besides we don't trust you because you're incompetence and they're like oh screw you we'll show you who's incompetent we're going to go drain blood out of that monster and so you follow them to their idiot plan and discover oh yeah things about to get really unreal really soon because of course they've screwed it up they've maybe spattered the the the, the stakes and you can't tell which is which or they've you know the the set up vibrations that are causing the stakes to judder and they're going to you know topple out of the wound at some point and you have to do something and do you like gun down your buddies who are just simple monster uh black marketeers like you do you try and stop them with um appeals to sanity which doesn't work cuz you know they're they're uh, David Mamet crook level idiots do you um try and pull out the stake and swap it around and turn the monster into dust but because you really got to decide now because their stupid plan is happening. Everybody needs and, and Icker. So, that's why they call it Icker. That's why they call it Icker. Exactly. So, uh, the, uh, another possibility then, if, uh, this creature is essentially, uh, working as a, uh, an, an Icker factory is, uh, you've got to keep that thing fed, uh, that the uh, original people are going to turn it into the demon tower. Once they build the thing, the creature is going to die and fuse its power into the building or become the building. But that's not happening, and so uh, if you uh, want the creature to keep giving off blood, you've got to feed it. And so, uh, and of course, who do you have? What do you have to feed it? People. And so that gives us another possible inciting incident, which is uh, your uh, one of your friends disappears. Uh, possibly, you know, you characters volunteer at a homeless shelter, and uh, you know everybody's uh, favorite uh, street character has gone missing and was last seen with these. Uh, uh, creepy people who you know from the occult underground and you then have to check out and see, you know, why are they, it can't be a good reason that they're kidnapping people for, and then you find out what their plot is and their relationship to the pit. And then of course you go down in the pit and, uh, you want to set this up, of course, so that you have a chance of rescuing your friend, uh, and, uh, whether, uh, once part, some of you get your friend out of there, uh, do you then pull out the stake and let the, uh, the creature, attack the uh, people who uh, have been tormenting it for a decade. You know, you, it's it's a sentient creature. You're, you've done enough research along the way. You figure that uh, given a choice of who to eat, if it's let free, it's going to uh, eat uh, the uh, the bad guys first. And then uh, presumably you have some other pl- plan, possibly involving a rocket launcher, uh, to finish the thing up when it uh, uh, boils up out of the lid of the, uh, uh, the spire. And... Uh, you know, you want to hope you hit it because otherwise then, you know, it's on you to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, stop it. Or, you know, maybe it'll go climb up the Trump Tower and do something, uh, uh geomantic that you, uh, that you also want to encourage before you, uh, fly in with your helicopter and try to take it out. <laughs> right. It's like, hey, 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 let's just see where it's going with this, uh, raid on the city. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do want to point out as another element that you can, uh, use as you build this story deeper. Um, that, uh, the site used to have the Lindsay Light Company. And the Lindsay Light Company made lights using thorium. So there is thorium contamination all over the site. Um, although that has been uh, allegedly remediated by the city now. But, uh, back when there were bur- burying monsters under it, 
maybe the radioactive thorium is part of why the whole thing went south and why the monster's ichor is so expertly delicious and it has uh, not been slumbering as properly as the incantation and or stakes should have left it. Well, I, I think uh, now that we've uh, explained everything that's going on there uh, to the satisfaction of uh, uh, anyone other than the people trying to cover up the truth, I think uh, we can now, uh, having undug this hole, uh, head to our next segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Get double points on your cursed tokens, just like Patreon backers. Ryan Leibarger. Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Tony Kemp. And Chris Leiden. The whir of the projector, the crunch of popcorn, and the something under our feet welcome us once more to the center of the row, looking out over the cinema hut. And today the cinema hut is projecting samurai movies, thanks to a request from Patreon backer Steve Sick, who wants to know Samurai Movies 101. I assume he wanted to know something, but Samurai Movies 101 is the summation of what Steve Sick wants, and what Steve Sick wants, Steve Sick gets. Robin, do we have the capacity within Samurai Movies 101 to not make this Akira Kurosawa Movies 101? Is there enough other stuff? Akira Kurosawa Movies 101 would include the films that we're about to list, but they would also include many of his non-Samurai films. (laughs) So Kurosawa 101 is a bigger category than Samurai 101. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So this is so obvious that do you want me to just list all? Because basically, any Kurosawa. I guarantee we are going movie, to have at least five of the same six written down as the sort of starter kit uh, Kurosawa's. Right. So let's just list the obvious ones, uh, and these are also the most widely available ones, and some would argue the uh, most comprehensible to Western audiences. Although I think that observation is uh, about forty times overblown. Um, so. Uh, the obvious big majestic classic, 
Seven Samurai from 1954. I wrote an essay about it in Blowing Up the Movies. It's a uh, not only classic samurai uh, film, but a classic bunch of people on a mission a movie. My second favorite film of all time, right behind uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half, is Yojimbo, uh, which is an uncredited translation into the samurai genre of Dashiell Hammett's novel uh, Red Harvest, uh, which then went off and became a fistful of dollars and has continued to be made and remade through various uh, genres, but never better than uh, Yojimbo with Toshiro Mifune as a uh, the quintessential uh, badass uh, samurai playing off uh, the two sides of this town against each other and uh, slowly destroying them. Uh, do you want to pick up the rest of the list, Ken? I mean, I will say then, you would once you've seen Yojimbo, watch Sanjiro, which is the sequel to Yojimbo. Toshiro Mifune plays probably the same guy, but since his name is literally guy who's 30 years old, who knows? But it's another great one for a few dollars more is uh, sort of vaguely echoes from this, but it's not as close as Yojimbo is to Fistful. But it's still its own wonderful, wonderful samurai movie. Wonderful Mifune in his prime, Kurosawa really feeling his oats. This is from 1962, so it's uh, practically on the on the heels of the of the spaghetti western blowing up, and obviously it's where. Kurosawa, having seen a ton of westerns, is now internalizing a lot of them. While we talk about Kurosawa and movies that inspired other movies, we, of course, are talking about The Hidden Fortress, which is a sort of a man-on-a-mission-type movie, but is also got hilarious comical peasants who become hilarious comical droids in Star Wars. Uh, because Star Wars is not ripping off Flash Gordon, it's ripping off The Hidden Fortress. Yeah, right right down to the uh, the horizontal wipes. Right, yeah, I mean, and then there are the two, I would say, although there are others, the two great uh, Shakespeare samurai movies, Throne of Blood, which is Macbeth, and Ron, which is King Lear. And Ron is, uh, all these others have been in the 60s and 50s. Ron is actually uh, made in 1985, and is sort of a, what we thought might have been, a coda to the samurai genre, but in fact, merely sort of gave it a little bit of a breather, and then we start making more samurai movies again in the next couple of decades. Right, and then uh, you also want to see uh, Kajimusha, which is also uh, one of his uh, late uh, classics. It's not as um, brightly colorful, but as uh, sort of uh, anti-war testaments to the, the sort of uh, mindless... Uh, slaughter that that is involved in in battle and that the glorification of the warrior caste that uh, underpins the samurai ethos you see where it all leads in uh, Kajimusho which also has sort of a kind of an eerie quality to it there's nothing overtly supernatural about it unlike of course Throne of Blood which got to have got to uh, witches have in it and witches yeah and so next let's go back in time to 1941 for uh, what is a kind of more stately take on the samurai genre. It's based on the very famous historical story of the 47 Ronin, and is therefore called the 47 Ronin. Uh, and also, there's a, a newer version from 2006 called Hannah by one of my favorite directors, Hirokazu Koreeda, uh, and has Tadanabu Asano in it. And the uh, that's sort of the peasant's eye version of that story, where what the nobles are doing is off over the hill... And there's the, you know, the one character who's eventually going to be drawn into that, but it's sort of in a way kind of the, the anti-samurai movie that in, in, in its own way kind of uh, critiques that uh, noble uh, warrior uh, ethos and the uh, the senseless slaughter that it entailed. And uh, the 47 Ronin has been made into 
a bunch of different uh, movies a bunch of different times. Uh, Toshiro Mifune is in a 1962 uh, 47 Ronin movie, which I think is the one that I saw. I don't think I've seen the 41 one. And um, I haven't seen the 1994 47 Ronin movie either, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means there are a lot of freaking 47 Ronin movies. Um, I also didn't see the American one, but I suspected that was not very good. Right. It's, it's like seeing all the Wyatt Earp movies. Right. Yeah. Uh, which I probably have seen, but that's a different argument for a different day. Um, in the sixties, sort of that same era, I would recommend not in a great film way, but in a great sense of the genre way, watching as many of the Zatoichi movies as you possibly can. Um, they're not great, but they will kill an evening really nicely. Uh, Zatoichi is probably the best known and best loved of the samurai running characters from the whole genre. And because they're less purely artistic and beautiful than a Kurosawa movie, you can maybe lean into them a little more and sort of get more of the fictive blood on you uh, watching them. Uh, I don't really have a favorite. They're pretty much all cranked out uh, right. by Toho, I think. And, and they get, a, they tend to get a little slow in the middle. They, they're, and they're, and they're kind of samey, samey. So don't watch them all in a row because that will, will really, you know, tire you out. Right. But then that will set you up to watch 2003's uh, Zatoichi by Takeshi Kitano, which is a masterpiece and is, and is awesome. And yes. Is awesome. Uh, Beat Takeshi does an amazing job. Uh, with sort of any, and I think that that is really one of the movies that sort of restarted the samurai genre as a thing that you could do in Japanese cinema, that they stopped being sort of embarrassed about it. And they said, yeah, we can have fun with this. We can go back into it in the same way that periodically someone tries to revive the Western and does it badly because they're terrible. Um, if we had a beat Takeshi in America, we could go make, uh, uh, Westerns all day because someone would sort of get what is cool about the genre and get what is cool about now and be able to blend them in a way that maybe we haven't had for Westerns. But uh, in that same category as that to uh, the, the new Zatoichi, I would put Takashi Miike's 13 Assassins, yes. which is a magnificent, tremendous over the top samurai movie. It is also a masterpiece and um uh, is every bit as bloody and ridiculous as you want a movie made in the now to be, but is every bit as serious and heavy and emotionally overwhelming as any of the great, well, not any of the greats, but any of the um, uh, second-tier Kurosawas and down, I think it can stand up to those. And it's just a fun watch. And before it goes wild, though, it is a very slow burn and in its own way, very stately and controlled. Yeah. 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 I mean, also, it's, it's, it's not just a, a stupid, um, it's not the expendables of Japan. It's a, it's a real movie. Mike is a real director and he's got real philosophical things to say and he does it really, really well. I, I've, I'm a giant, uh, fan of, of Mike, especially sort of the modern Mike when he sort of has climbed up out of nihilism and is sort of saying, well, what was, what was wrong with my original uh, viewpoint of the world and how do I interrogate that in my art? And that's why I, I liked Blade of the Immortal so much, which is another kind of a samurai movie in that it's about the collapse of the samurai era in a way, the way that Westerns are about the fall of the West. And so Blade of the Immortal has a lot of that same epic thought quality to it, as well as the, you know, sort of um, a trademark Mike hyperviolence, which again is done for an artistic purpose. It's not just done because they had a sale on uh, red corn syrup that day. I'm going to skip back in time to 1962 and Harakiri by Masaki Kobayashi. Uh, this stars Tetsuya Nakadai, who uh, appears in Ron and is also often a villain in the earlier Kurosawa uh, 
samurai films. Uh, he is, he takes that role in Yojimbo, for example. And in this film, which has uh, later been remade at least uh, once, uh, it is about the, again, the collapse of the samurai ethos at a time, uh, when there aren't any wars for them to fight. And so, uh, masterless samurai go around from clan to clan and they show up and they beg for permission to commit seppuku to kill themselves in, in the courtyard of a clan that has money. And so the point of this traditionally is, uh, oh no, we'll give you some alms to go away. Don't embarrass us by killing yourself in our lovely courtyard. Uh, and, but in this case, the, the head of the clan uh, decides he's going to be a hard ass and clamp down in this, uh, uh, project and, and say, go ahead, go ahead and do that. And it turns out that there's more to this story and there's a story of, of revenge and, uh, another great example of a, uh, stately film that then upshifts, uh, in the, in the final act and it's all about sort of the, the hollowing out of, uh, you know, what really lies behind the, the samurai, uh, code. If you want to talk about an, sort of an anti-samurai samurai movie, and this one is so anti-samurai that I think there's barely even a samurai in it, um, but I, I cannot let the opportunity pass to praise Onibaba, uh, which is a horror movie by Kaneto Shindo, and it was made in 1964, and it is, really good. It is an antidote to the sort of Chambara samurai as heroes ethos. And even, you know, the Chambara films question it the same way that the Westerns question the gunfighter. But Onibaba is about peasants who murder samurai and take their armor and weapons because they're sick of samurai ruining everything. And it has, you know, sort of a Everything is in the era of misrule, so the the spiritual world is upset and demons are stalking the land type of a feel to it. It's got the creepiest field of grass that has ever been filmed, I think, by anybody. Um, yes. If you're playing a samurai game and your GM says, you wander into the high reeds, get out of there, man. Get out, man. Yeah. There's peasants with spears who want to sell your armor. It's not a good sign. Um, I, I, I cannot recommend Onibaba highly enough. It is, as I say, only barely a samurai movie, but I think it's an essential commentary on the samurai movies. And, of course, it was made during the height of the samurai uh, and Chambara genres. Uh, Chambara, I guess for people who don't know, is sort of like to samurai what wuxia is to martial arts films. So right. you can have a martial arts film that isn't wuxia, but a Chambara is like a samurai but louder, right? Right. Because, uh, and, and at the, we don't have time to get into the definitional thing. So that's right. some samurai films are Chambara and others are Jedi Gekkai. People who need a 101, Robin. I'm, I'm doing this for our listeners. That's yes. what I'm doing it for. Uh, well, what I'm doing for our listeners is telling them to find 1973's Lady Snowblood by uh, Toshia Fujita. Uh, this uh, is in the samurai era and has a, a killer sword fighting and stuff. But the main character is a young woman who has been raised from birth to be a killer swordswoman and seek revenge. And it has it's uh, based on a manga by the uh, guy who did the same the comic, the, uh, the baby cart. Uh, comics, uh, and this is also based on a, a series of comics, but it has, uh, it's sort of a, an amazing, captivating blend of, uh, sort of a drive-in movie, but also formal mastery and, uh, is also, uh, well worth seeing. And of course, in, uh, history, uh, the, uh, samurai were all, uh, men because of course this is a, a highly, uh, gender determined society, but here, you have a, a kick-ass uh, swordswoman and uh, something that is heavily referenced in the Kill Bill movies. Yeah, um, speaking of the uh, of that uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, it also w- turned into movies. 
Uh, the movies I'm not super fond of, but they are there. And if you want to see Lone Wolf and Cub in movie form, there is. I think a better tie-in samurai movie, believe it or not, is Three Outlaw Samurai, which was made as a prequel to a TV show in 1964 by Hideo Gosha. But you don't have to have seen the TV show, I promise you, to have uh, to enjoy Three Outlaw Samurai. And it's sort of the, what do I want to say, maybe sort of Adventures of Robin Hood feel of a samurai movie. It's, I don't want to say rollicking, but it's more uh, good-humored and less uh, deadly serious because... We know that these guys have to have wacky TV adventures later on. And so it's a little more intriguey and personality driven than some of the samurai movie. And I found it, uh, really, really enjoy. I would, did not expect to like it so well as, as I did. I, I don't know if I would call it a masterpiece, but I would call it a, a really great movie in the same way that Robin Hood is a really great movie. Um, my final uh, title I'm going to mention is, uh, Taboo, or you may see it under the Japanese name of Gohato. It's from 1999. It's directed by uh, Nagisa. Oshima, the uh, subversive uh, formalist director, uh, best known for In the Realm of the Senses. And uh, this is about, again, samurai in peacetime. What does that mean? What do you do? And it's all about what happens when the new, very beautiful young uh, samurai enters a community of older men who all get a, a bad hankering for him and uh, uh, things fall apart. And it's, uh, and it's a very uh, a beautifully perverse uh, a film and uh, a more a much more of a drama than an action movie. And do you have anything on your list left, Ken? On the same sort of note of what do you do when you're not um, samuraiing anymore? When you're not chopping people up? Uh, there's a movie called The Twilight Samurai or Tasogari CB or Cbi, uh, directed by Yoji Yamada, uh, 2002, and it's about a samurai who's an accountant and how he's just sort of working as an accountant and then sort of samurai things start to sort of boil up in the corner and it's very much in the same metric as an organized crime film where you have the guy who's sort of gone straight but he's still part of the world and when they call on him he sort of comes in and he regrets it and of course everything goes horribly wrong so rather than watch a samurai as a western which a lot of them were filmed as this is kind of an interesting different way to look at it and there's still um violence and killing in it so You've still got um, some of what you're there for, but as well as having this sort of weird, different look at it and at the genre. Uh, well, uh, since both of our lists have, have now been expended, it's time for us to uh, uh, undergo a tea ceremony and then uh, see what uh, lurks for us on the other side of this commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long whispered of slipcase set is shipping in June. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World. 
and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs where we wave to the glowering portrait of Madame Vyblatsky, and then head on through uh, the door where, uh, normally, we find an Edwardian parlor where awaits the consulting occultist in a smoking jacket. But this time, there's just Ken and I, because Patreon backer Ash Jackson is the scroll bard has the following question for us. How would you each circumscribe a sacred alphabet? And since I'm the one throwing the segment, Ken, you're the first one to start answering the question. Okay, um, I would begin by saying that I would never question the scroll bard, but I don't think he meant to say circumscribe. Circumscribe means to restrict something within limits, to draw literally a circle around it, circumscriba. Um, and uh, while you draw lots of circles around lots of things in magic, uh, mostly around names of God and uh, pictures of demons, you uh, do not circumscribe the alphabet. I think perhaps... Uh, the scroll bard is asking us, how would we design or perhaps how would we utilize a sacred alphabet? Um, to begin with, obviously, there's tons of sacred alphabets out there uh, from Hebrew on down to the less sacred alphabets made up by uh, uh, what you see. And in, in, when you look it up, you, it's called the witch's alphabet, usually in bad uh, magic books. Uh, that tends to be sort of a little code alphabet language that it shows up in sort of late uh, the uh, Renaissance or early or, or mid modern era grimoires in France and, uh, is used as, I think, sort of the Ovaltine secret message of the grimoire collecting business. I don't ever know that anyone ever used any of those for real, but there they were in the grimoires and now they're part of our, of our magical alphabet world. Obviously, John D has Enochian, which is its own magical, wonderful thing. And that is a job and a half to figure out any of. Uh, he translates it into English in a lot of cases, but the English translations are, if anything, more opaque than the original o Enochian sigils. So good luck with that. Um, but I think I would begin, like I say, by picking a secret alphabet, a sacred alphabet, a magical alphabet, and I would pick it based on what I'm going to use it for. So, Robin, do you have thoughts on magical alphabets and their titular super, uh, circumscription? Right. So uh, that's exactly where I would start with what is the what am I using this for? So uh, questions I would want to and I assume the question is, uh, how would you make one up? Right. Because uh, I don't have to make up Hebrew or Enochian. Those already exist. And uh, and then the, the process of that is not about uh, deciding what's in them or not in them, but rather researching them and, and then finding going from there to a premise. But here, uh, you know, there is a. A scenario of some kind, or perhaps a short story that we want to use it for. So, what is the role that we want it to play in the story? Uh, so, questions to ask first of all are: Is this a sacred alphabet in a universe where these things have actual power, or is this a sacred alphabet in a world where some people believe that it has power, but that is not objectively true? As, for example, in our universe. So the next question is, you know, if the alphabet is sacred, it's not just a magical alphabet, but we're talking theurgy of some kind that you're drawing on the power of the gods. It's it's like it's like prayer with more math yeah. <laughs> when you when you're doing thaumaturgy. And part of it is that uh, 
you know, it's sort of a magical contract law, right? That you're, uh, if you invoke the right, uh, series of letters in your, uh, sacred alphabet, then it just obliges the, uh, the angels or other divine forces to, uh, oh, well, oh, he's, 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 uh, he's done his homework. We gotta deliver the power for him. So the next question is what entity or entities are you actually invoking? Uh, and, uh, they can be, uh, you know, we assume from sacred alphabet that that means that they are, uh, relatively benign entities who wish to provide, uh, some sort of, uh, power to the people in the know who presumably, according to the, uh, the spirit, if not the letter of the rules, are, uh, supposed to do things on behalf of mankind. But in this, you could just as equally be drawing on the power of, uh, sinister gods, you know, your Cthulhu's and pals, or you could be drawing on the power of, uh, you know, the less morally uh, black and white uh, pagan gods who were, uh, you know, powers of, of nature or powers of uh, uh, other abstract concepts who are neither uh, necessarily, uh, they're good to their followers and they're bad to their followers of, of their enemies. So what is this entity that we're drawing on with this form of magic? Hebrew is an example, of course, of a language that is a uh, the alphabet of a living language that is uh, used for everything from, you know, editorials in the newspaper to this esoteric uh, sense of the language that you're manipulating through its uh, secret powers. Uh, but I would be inclined to say, well, what is the secret or uh, hidden alphabet that you're going to discover? Are you just finding out the magic behind a well-known alphabet or script? Or are you going back and finding the sort of Ur alphabet uh, that was practiced by a now vanished culture, uh, so that uh, your esoteric use of it is the fact that you are learning how to uh, speak uh, Proto-Indo-European, and you discover its non-existent script, or you know you're figuring out these uh, symbols on these paintings are really runes, and then that tells you how to work magic to invoke uh, these uh, divine entities who don't get called on very much anymore, and so they might be uh, pretty quick to respond. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of, uh, the, the classic way of, of making up your, your, your new magical alphabet or, or sacred alphabet is you go back and you fake something up based on Hebrew. Um, that's what Agrippa did when he made up, um, uh, the Unorian alphabet. It's a, it's a very standard sort of a practice and people have done it, like I say, for about 200 years in the middle of the great, uh, occult revival. And that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with it. But I think if you're trying to, come up with a new sacred alphabet, the reason you're doing that is because none of your old sacred alphabets really work. So either you are trying to do, you know, Hebrew, but too much, uh, and you're trying to do the alphabet of Atlantis or Rillier. Um, the, obviously the Nacal alphabet of Mu is in books everywhere because church word made it up, um, and wrote it down. You have alphabets of Atlantis that you can find, uh, the alphabet of Rillier. I'm sure some fan has, has come up with, but, if you are trying to do a new sacred alphabet, maybe the thing to do is start trying to figure out what does the new sacred express itself as. And I think that maybe the direction to go there is you start looking at um not even ASCII, but the universal codes in your computer that, you know, you go all the way out to the very far edges of, of wingdings or, or the symbol fonts. And there's all kinds of weird little things that you never, ever, ever use. And what if those are the basis of or the expression of the new uh, Kabbalistic truths that comes from every single person, you know, billions of people literally carrying around a machine that does nothing except 
run variations on number patterns, which is to say, create a Kabbalistic reality. So you take the thing that those number patterns are all being mapped to, and you say that must be the basis of the sacred alphabet. And you don't just, you know, make your alphabet um handphone hashtag this, that, the other thing, because that looks stupid, but you use that as sort of a basis graphically to figure out what the sacred alphabet would look like. And when when you're uh when you do that, then you can sort of go a little bit crazy and uh come up with things that you know mean things and have the secret meaning of the various runes that you're uh creating. But the player characters, uh when they stumble on them, they'll take forever to figure out even one. It'll be a real job, a, a real sort of a feeling of success that, oh, no, we figured out that this um uh, weird little hook symbol that goes around and has a tail coming off of it. That is a, um, uh, that's about communication and connection. And so we can, when we see that, we know that someone is trying to send a message or that, um, it's created a summoning or something like that. And they can build up the vocabulary piece by piece. But I think that, um, if you, if you're trying to go back and find an ancient sacred alphabet, we've got those. So to come up with a new one, I think it's more fun to look at something that is, um, uh, that is new and that is relevant to the way that actual communication and alphabeting happens in the modern world, right? Right. Well, we, we know where alphabeting is going in the modern world. And if we're talking about neo-magic, about uh, newly immunitizing entities of our era who may be very different than the ones beforehand or might just be uh, old uh, elemental forces taking new forms, of course, that brings us to emoji magic. And so uh, the way that or emojic. works... As yes. no one calls it. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so the way that works is that all of the players in your group are, are all, uh, emojicians. And, uh, the, uh, way that you can, uh, work a spell does not mean that they have floppy hair and listen to sad music. Right. Well, some of them might, but it's yes. not, it's, a, it, it, that's sort of a, a, a decade earlier. Uh, but your, the way that you successfully work magic, uh, in, uh, this role playing game, is that you send a sequence of emojis uh, to another player, and uh, the more emojis that you uh, can string together, the more uh, subtle or powerful the effect. But the effect only goes off if the other player can figure out what it is that you're saying in emoji talk. And so uh, if I uh, send you a, a unicorn monkey sun, and you know... Uh, what effect I'm trying to evoke and can correctly guess my effect happens because I've successfully understood the true alphabet of images that underlies all uh, other alphabets. And I'm drawing on the power of, uh, of the various entities that uh, relate to those classic runes. But if you don't know what that means, obviously I haven't uh, been able to communicate in the language of emojis and therefore uh, my uh, my spell fails and I lose an opportunity or I lose a little bit of uh, magic or just the thing that I wanted to happen doesn't happen. Um, but you want to make sure that, you know, the, the poop emoji does not appear because uh, this is already a dumb enough concept without uh, dragging that into it. <laughs> yeah. See, the, 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 the uh, emojis like um, uh, the wingdings are going to suffer from semantic overload or semiotic overload, rather, in the sense that, they already have meetings and trying to convince people that the poop emoji is actually a uh, glyph for Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, because dung attracts flies. Um, that may be a, a bridge too far for a horror campaign. 
Um, again, though, it can be a, a, a sort of eccentric thing that a crazy NPC magician does. And part of the sort of weird comic relief can be trying to decipher his insane emoji texts as magical communications when, you know, you're sort of, you can sort of inhabit your character's skepticism that this guy's actually onto anything, except you know in play that, yeah, this guy can summon demons and do things. And so figuring out his emoji uh, text, the incongruity becomes part of the game experience as opposed to a flaw to the notion of an emoji-based magical alphabet. Right, and and you'd be leaning into the uh, somewhat satirical idea that, you know, the, the new uh, post-literate society that emojis presage is uh, going to uh, bring a new form of intuitive magic into being and that, uh, you know, the, the ultimate uh, goal is to uh, create a new uh, race of servitor hum- homunculi who uh, communicate only in emoji. And, uh, you know, you may be trying to, uh, you know, but while you're doing that, you know, you may accidentally create a real unicorn or two and uh, hijinks will presumably uh, ensue from that, especially if they uh, get a hold of your Twitter account. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we all know what happens when unicorn hijinks get a hold of your Twitter account. Yeah, for one thing, uh, unicorn hijinks inevitably uh, mean the end of a podcast. So uh, we will uh, wave goodbye. Uh, we will uh, try and find a stable for all these new unicorns. But we'll be back next week with a new exciting podcast for everybody. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Fill the pits of our hearts with Patreon support alongside backers exactly like Ethan James, Isaac Priestley, James Pearson, Linda and Mike Schiffer, and Philip Masters. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest shirt is The Only Wrong Track is a Boring Track. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.